Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Welcome back to Author News Weekly. Thanks for joining us. We are ready to talk about all things authorial. And this week, we are joined by the full cast. We are back at full strength. We've got Jim Heskett. Hello. And we've got Pippa Warner. Hello. And we've got lounging and maxing and relaxing Mr. Nick Thacker. What up, Mr. Boy, Nick? That's right. So listen, guys, <laughs> last week we had Craig sit in for you guys. He Not said you guys were missing because you were running from warrants. Did you guys get that resolved, or is everything good? Uh, I'm not the state. <laughs> I'm not supposed to talk about it yet. No, warrants found me, and we worked it out. Okay. Do we need to start a GoFundMe to help you guys with your legal trouble? You can start a GoFundMe and give me money. I'm I'm all for that. Awesome, awesome. But listen, here's the thing. I'm a level with you guys. All right. I'm very glad that you're back. Okay, because. Don't tell her this, but Pippa was kind of scaring me, okay? She had this, like, background behind her that was, like, a space view of the world, and she had, like, a high back chair, and she was swiveling back and forth and steepling her fingers, and it gave me, like, Dr. Claw vibes, and I was getting a little nervous. (laughs) Yeah, when I'm on Zoom, I can do the cool background stuff. I was a little scared. I thought she was going to ask me if I wanted to join the dark side or something. And like, I was just scared oh, no, all I around. Just assumed. Oh, that's true. Something's <laughs> understood. The dark side has a, uh, what's that saying? Come to the dark side. We have cookies or something. Yeah, we do. I make very good cookies. Yeah, I'm down. <laughs> I'm down. You talked me into it. I have my husband's grandmother's Nebraskan grandmother's cookie recipe that calls for eight cups of flour and similar quantities of everything else. Excellent, dude. They make them big in Nebraska. I love it. I love it. All right, guys. So without further ado, we are going to get into the news featuring an impromptu drop by the magical musician, Mr. Nick Decker. No, that's a modem. <laughs> that was awesome, man. That was I'm awesome. glad we've cut the music budget of the show to zero. Now. You know, sometimes you gotta. COVID was hard for everyone. Sometimes you gotta cut corners. Cut corners. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, good, it's, man. it's all good. The length right. we go to to bring you all this show. Okay, the length that's, we go to. That's right. Improvisational beatboxing. All right. I know. All right. So first story that we have here comes from Mr. Dean Wesley Smith. Okay. So I don't know if we've talked about him a lot on the show yet. Dean Wesley Smith is, you know, a very big name in the industry. He has written plenty of traditional books. I think like, you know, Star Wars and like big names like that. He's also very big in the indie space as well. And so because of that, he has some heterodox thinking sometimes about the way that things should go. So he had an article that came out a couple months ago that I've been reading through, and it's called Why to Avoid at All Costs, right? And he's referencing traditional book publishers. So I think that when a guy has had the success that Dean Wesley Smith has had with traditional book deals, him being very against it now uh, is at least worth noting and at least worth listening to. 
Okay. The number one reason that he's got, you know, logical reasons why to avoid traditional book publishers at all costs. Number one is you could write and be making money from dozens of indie published novels and the time it takes to get through the traditional publisher route with one book. And it goes on from there. Did you guys have a chance to take a look at this list? What do you think about Dean's opinions here? I mean, not always true. A lot of this can be fixed with. So like if lightning struck and someone wanted to make your book into a movie or a game, you would get pennies if that and no credit is like that's something that you can adjust in a contract. A lot of things, however, you can't adjust in a contract. It's kind of a take it or leave it situation. But yeah, I mean, a lot of this is totally fair as a critique. It's going to take two to three years, even once a place has acquired your book to get the book out. Then He starts with this horror story about an author who is spending 10 years trying to get one book published and which i have a lot of questions about that like did the author not get faster over 10 years writing like why did it takes this author a year to write each draft of the book and i wonder if the is the agent like a real writer writes no more than 600 words a day so make sure you don't do you know i don't know if the agent's doing that or if this- well, that's making the rounds again whatever you do don't write more than a book a year yeah, that's, that's like, oh, yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I think Mr. Smith's all nine of his arguments against traditional publishing are valid. He loses a little bit when he's got some pretty clear bias. Like he refers to them as idiots, etc. <laughs> I think, though, he's a little clickbaity and a little rabble-rousy when he talks about indie publishing. And I think some of his opinions are a little bit dangerous, especially to newer writers, because he says, you know, never let another person, including an editor, touch your work. Yeah. Which is fine for a dude who's been publishing for 40 years. But if you don't have that sort of laser focus level of self-editing, it's and okay. Is, and is married to an excellent editor also. Yeah. And he also says to make your own covers. There's some things in here that if you're a new author, you should really take with a few grains of salt. Yeah. Yeah. I like the one reality. I can pay for my book cover art for $5. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, all right, man. You know, like, is that today's dollars or is that like, you know, 1974? Because I think just to be honest, I mean, dead honest, I can design my own book cover and I can do pretty well with it, but I've had training. I've had experience. I know Photoshop in and out, like that kind of stuff. But with if stock I photography and, plus time, there's no way. There's no way. And so, and I've, I've started paying our good friend, Dave uh, Barron's shout out. If anybody needs a cover, go talk to him because he's amazing. And, and he's priced better than anyone else for what you get. I've started paying him because it's better use of my time and money, but there's no way he's ever going to charge as little as $5 to get that done. My takeaway from this, yeah, no, he's not wrong. I agree with everything Jim says too about Dean. He's a good guy. He knows his stuff for sure. You would be unwise to ignore Dean's advice. But I see this a lot in his debate. People compare a horror story on the trad side with the best case scenario on the indie side or vice versa. And that's not fair, right? That doesn't make any sense. So I think the best way to look at this is to think about, let's just assume for a minute that you're guaranteed to have the best possible outcome with traditional publishing. That means you're going to get an agent and you're going to get a book published and you're going to have multiple books published by then. Look, today in 2021, it's still going to be 18 months between books, right? With a few exceptions. And so if that's okay for you, then you can go that route and you really can potentially make a living there. But I say potentially because you'll still probably be pulling down 50K, best case scenario, right? So again, there's all these variables at play. And obviously there's movie deals and things that could come in if, if you're talking best case scenario. But Best case scenario with indie is it just blows it wide open. There's just yeah. so much you can do on that side that you're not limited by anybody else telling you what you can or can't do. You're limited by how much you can write and how fast you can do it. Or sorry, how fast you can write and how well you can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. So, hey, that whole book of year thing, Jim, 
you should shut up, man. <laughs> Some people are forced to only write one book a year right now. Okay. Just, I'm mm-hmm. not going to name names, but mm-hmm. he rhymes with stick stacker. Mm. Okay. <laughs> well, let's not drag thick knacker through the mud here. He doesn't need to be beaten down. It's okay. It's okay. Thick hypothetical person that you are. All right. So that's okay. He understands. <laughs> <laughs> so check out the link to uh, this story from Dean Wesley Smith. He's got a lot of great stuff to say. You know, I know at the 20 Books Conference a couple of years ago, he was there and uh, I liked his presentation. He's a very savvy guy. He's got a lot of ideas about how to leverage your existing properties for you. And, and, you know, I think they're all good. So it's definitely worth checking out. All right. Next, we have a story that was brought to my attention by the esteemed Jim Heskett. All right. So we're going to put our craft hats on for just a little while here and it's called the three w's of scene orientation so this is kind of geared towards people who obviously want to write and who sometimes find themselves uh, having a hard time orient a scene first paragraph here says i suspect we all know people who will walk in a room and say something like i still can't believe she'd quit on me right and so the problem is the comment is just kind of floating out there. You don't really know who quit, why they quit, what's going on. And if you're writing like that, if that's going into your books, that can be problematic for your readers. You know, they may start to kind of lose interest because they're not as invested. So they said they have these down here. So I want you to get your guys' takes on this. The first one is who took action and who did it affect, right? That's one of the W's. The next is what happened exactly. The third is where did it take place? Sounds like all those things we learned in elementary school, right? When did it take place and why did it happen? Why does it matter to this particular story and this particular protagonist? So, Jim, I want to get your take on the W's of scene orientation. Well, I think it's great to have some checks and balances for your own writing like that, thinking about who did it, where it happened, when it took place, all that stuff, and making sure that you put it in a scene because it's sometimes easy to leave that in your head and not put it onto the page and just assume that the readers will be oriented in space the way that you're oriented in space, your vision of it, but their vision of the scene might be different. So you need to make sure that you have enough anchors there so they know what's happening and when it's happening. I think aside from that, the main thing that I always try to ensure that my characters have is a goal and an agenda in each scene. Every character of note in a scene needs a goal and an agenda. So I think if you're, especially if you're a newer writer, there's so many things you have to keep track of when you're writing, you know, like make sure that I vary the length of my sentences and make sure that I'm not jumping between heads and make sure that I'm not starting sentences with the same word, like three sentences in a row. And there's all these different things you have to keep track of that over time become automatic. I don't really think about varying my sentence length now. It just kind of happens when I write. But keeping track of where the characters are in space is also very useful. So you don't have a character like sit down twice in the scene (laughs) or, you know, sit down without standing up first, stuff like that. And remembering who's wearing a watch and who's not wearing a watch and who's wearing glasses and all that kind of stuff. You need to keep track of those little details. Agreed. Well done. Well done. Nick, what about you, man? What about you, a craft master? Yeah, right. I've been accused of a lot of things. That's definitely not one of them. (laughs) Um, You know, I I agree with Jim, as always. I like stuff like this as reference material. So if I'm stuck on a particular thing in my novel, whether it's a scene or a character or whatever, you know, I could say, okay, well, I remember reading something about this at this website. This is good. Maybe I have it in my swipe file. I keep articles like this. So I can go back and say, oh, maybe that's what I'm missing. Maybe I just need to kind of 
put another W in there in the sentence to explain better what we're doing. And that's, that's going to help me get unstuck. I don't think, um, I think this is kind of what Jim was saying too. I don't think it's crucial for us to just really sweat and strain over this kind of thing, every single scene, because it can hinder our writing. It can hinder the flow, right? The muse. I'm a huge fan of Dwight Swain who taught Jack Bickham, who wrote scene and structure and Dwight. um, Yeah. Dwight wrote technique to the selling writer, which is, the same thing in a little bit older, probably more racist way. But uh, it's, he's got some really good, really good craft advice in there. And one of the things that he said is every scene is a goal, conflict, and then disaster. And disaster doesn't necessarily mean something blows up. It just means the goal that that character, the main point of view character has. Failure. Yeah, it doesn't succeed. And so he writes in scene and then sequel format. So you have a point of view character who has a goal, and then there's a conflict with that goal, which is what this article kind of is talking about. And then the disaster is the goal is not accomplished. And then in the next scene that that character shows up in, we need to see some kind of sequel, some kind of reaction, and then a dilemma, and then a decision. And those are the three for a sequel. Um, mm-hmm. That that decision is the next goal that that point of view character will have. So he does this over and over again throughout a story. And by the end of it, you've got a pretty well-structured novel where your characters are doing things that make sense and things are happening to them that make it hard for them to accomplish their goal. And that's pretty much writing in a nutshell. So I think if stuff like this is a really helpful reference piece, if there's a particular instance within one of those scenes or sequels where I get stuck, I'm like, well, maybe I haven't really explained who this character is and why they would talk like that. So this could be a helpful way to do that. I hope that'll make sense. I'm actually someone who tends to bulk up instead of stripping down as I like as I go over and self-edit my stuff. Hmm. And so often I use that Jack Bickham scene and structure thing as just a lens for when I do my first editing pass to be like, okay, did I explain where they are? No, I didn't. I need to put that in. (laughs) But I just get all of the action and the conversation out of the way and then bulk it up later. So it's good to have this in the back of your head, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, I think in the beginning, before you kind of get hip to the tricks that these three are talking about, you can find yourself sometimes spinning your wheels a little bit. People are just doing things and the drive of the story isn't moving forward. And so if you keep some of these tips in mind while you write, I think you may not have that problem. So the article will be in the show notes and, uh, you know, we'll post it up. So check it out if you think that these things are something that you're struggling with. All right. Next. This is also given to me by Jim Heskett. Jim, you're a regular font of knowledge this week, man. Yeah. You're doing great, man. I appreciate that. Uh, we have something coming from Book Funnel, which If I haven't said this on the show, I'm going to go out and say that there are two things that I don't think I could be successful without. And one of them is vellum and the other one is book funnel. They're that important to me. And so I like when I hear things from book funnel, Damon is the guy that's in charge of book funnel and he's quite a character. So he's a good guy. So they are announcing custom domains, your books, your brand, our back end. And so I just skimmed through this. But it looks like they are giving authors the ability uh, to have some more customized uh, landing pages. Is that what's going on, Jim? Yeah, they announced custom domains. So instead of whatever it was before, whatever the book kept dot whatever, now you could just be like books.ramcgee.com. It's a little easier to tell people, you know, if you want to tell people where to go for your landing page and it's closer to your website name. And hopefully if you brand it the same, with the same kind of colors and stuff people wouldn't even really know they're not on your website anymore. Mm. 
So this kind of leads me to a bigger thing. Like this is great. You know, book funnels doing awesome. I love book funnel. It kind of leads me to a bigger conversation about branding that I wanted to get into with you guys. Now you just mentioned branded with the same colors and stuff. What kind of important things do you think should be kept in mind to make sure that you are keeping yourself consistent as a brand, maybe not just visually, but with the other things that you do with your author career? Pippa. Oh Lord! <laughs> can I kick it to Nick? I'm I'm not sure. Any of I know this. Nick can Nick can freestyle. <laughs> Nick's got like kind of like a graphic artist kind of brain too. Sometimes. So, what about you, Nick? What are you doing? Yeah. yeah no. Well, that's you know I think it's a great question because branding is big and squishy, like a lot of things in business. Oh, you know, you can learn about it. <laughs> no, that wasn't a fat joke. Okay, I'm just saying it's a. I'm it's big, big bones. Um, you, you, you can learn theory and case study in business school like I did and then throw it all out the window when you actually get your feet on the ground. What I've learned about branding is that just like you alluded to, Ari, like it's, it's pervasive across all activities, personal and professional in my opinion. And so you're not really trying to build a brand as an author who writes a particular kind of book. You're trying to build a brand of who you are. Well, I guess what I mean is another way to say that is instead of trying to focus on finding your target demographic who would like the kind of books that you're writing, you're trying to find people who like you as a person. You're trying to find people who can gel with who you are because within that demographic, you're going to find people who will like your books and like what you have to do. I got really into this kind of meta discussion, if you will, um, earlier this year before I decided to change my life again and move around too much. Because I, I don't just write books, like I've got an, another creative side of writing music and things like that. And so I was trying to figure out how I can make this all easier without having to say, well, there's a Nick Thacker who does this and a Nick Thacker who does this and they're two completely different Nick Thackers. Um, and living this bipolar lifestyle, you know, is no fun. And so I came to the conclusion, right or wrong, this is where I am, that I think of branding as it's you as a person, not your books as a business. And that doesn't really help anybody do anything. You know, you're not going to hang up from the... or what, what is this, a podcast? What do we do with them? Do we hang them up? Do we stop them? We're not going to pause this podcast. There we pause. go. Pause. We're not going to pause it and go be like, now I know how to brand everything. I'm not, so I don't have specific advice. I'm just saying that mindset-wise, that's kind of where I am at this point is thinking of branding in terms of ourselves, who we are as a person. Now, none of that has anything to do with, uh, with BookFunnel. This article, I think this is good news because most of us started using BookFunnel because we needed an answer to the age-old problem that I seem to deal with more than anyone else, which is why I have the worst readers on the planet and why they suck so much at technology and just can't figure any of their shit out. BookFunnel answered that question because they handle the customer support. So I have no problem giving them SEO juice and sending people to BookFunnel and getting their their recognition for it. But I will admit that they're because these readers suck even more than I thought they could, um, they'll come back to me after going to BookFunnel and say, I don't want to download an app. I don't know what BookFunnel is. I don't trust it. It's all bullshit and you're a scammer. And that is verbatim, ladies and gentlemen. I have that email like 10 times in my inbox. I refuse to archive them because I want to read them every morning and remind myself why I do this. It's for the readers. Um, so long story short, I feel like this BookFunnel custom domain thing is going to make that probably not go away because like I said, you cannot understand the depths of the suckiness of my readers. They'll find a way to make this all suck and blow up in my face. But on the surface... This is really cool because most normal people won't realize that they're not on my website anymore. They'll just get the book and then they'll go about their their day shopping on the nickthacker.com, stickstacker.com website. You get all your uh, Harvey Bennett mugs and Mason Dixon mugs and tumblers, ladies and gentlemen. So check it out. Right on. Thickknacker.com. So, <laughs> I'm going to buy Thick Knacker, by the way, because I just like to say Thick Knacker. 
You, you know, this reminds you, huh? you, you think you're going to do that? You think I haven't thought that far ahead? You think we're talking about branding? Huh? Ask Jim what I do when he says cool domain. What's the first move, Jim? Come on. Fuck. Nick already owns all the domains. Oh, Damn. Man. Damn. You well, go daddy. You want to know who daddy is? It's me. <laughs> well played. Well played. You're always two steps ahead, Nick. You're always two steps ahead. You know, this reminds me of a conversation that some of us had, I don't know, earlier in the year, maybe last year, about websites and things like that. And Kevin Tomlinson had mentioned that he has been very deliberate about trying to brand himself as a writer, kind of like you're mentioning, Nick, like where he is the property, like he's the draw and whatever he writes, people are interested to kind of read from him. And to that effect, like he owns the domain names for all of his characters and like they point to his main website, you know, and stuff like that. So he had a lot of really interesting ideas. And you talking about that just kind of reminded me of that. I'll have to look that up and, and chat with him a little more. I'm uh, proud to have given him all his good ideas as well. So it's entirely possible. You guys yeah. have a weird symbiotic thing going on that I wouldn't <laughs> pretend to understand. So it's, all right. it's, it's symbiotic. Is that the right term for it? It's like um, the barnacle on the whale's belly. Like that, what's well, that that's, that's parasitic. parasitic. Is it? That's probably our relationship. No, nah, I don't know, but I know what he means. He's uh. trying, he's trying to mean parasitic. <laughs> I assumed that you gave as much as you got from Kevin, but I'm starting to What's feel this? like, what are we doing with our fingers here? What's the <laughs> finger thing you're doing? Symbiosis. Can, I, can you explain that to the people listening at home? Well, see what I did was I kind of interlaced my out. fingers and made an awkward, like rocking motion. And I don't know if it's just the angle, but one of your hands looks darker than the other one. And it's really freaking me out. Like, I'm wondering if someone's down there, like, okay, this is the hand part. Bring the hand up. This is the hand part guys. <laughs> RA is a puppet. It's still Desiree. You were Desiree yeah. last week. I definitely was. I definitely <laughs> was. All right, guys. So uh, good stuff with branding. Maybe we'll try to dive a little more into that for an episode. You know, I think that we can probably come up with some interesting ideas to throw at you guys, uh, listeners, for branding. Okay. So this is kind of an interesting little story here. I don't really think there's a way I can ask questions about it, but I just wanted to kind of talk about it. And uh, the header is whatever happened to teaching grammar. So it says, like cursive writing, the formal teaching of grammar was a mainstay in elementary school language arts and secondary school English programs since the founding of tax-supported public schools in the early 19th century, but no more. While many school districts in the U.S. have teachers who continue to teach grammar and syntax in connection with writing, especially in those districts committed to following common core curriculum standards, grammar instruction, especially memorizing rules and diagramming sentences, has faded from classroom lessons over the past half century. And my question to you guys is, is that a big deal, right? Is it a big deal that we're not really teaching people grammar anymore? As authors, what do you think? I rolled my eyes when I saw the title. It smacks to me of, and I know that I do the same thing because I write longhand a lot. So I write cursive because it's much faster. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, oh, people should learn to write cursive because it's much faster longhand. But it still reeks of the whole like, well, why don't we teach people cursive anymore? Like, I don't know, because the world moves on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. English is also an amazingly adaptable language. Like you can speak grammatically incorrectly and people almost always understand what you're saying. That's true. That's true. Yeah. It seemed like the crux of this article was that it was saying that grammar is taught differently. It's not taught as a separate subject. It's taught as part of writing instruction. So I don't know if this article is really just like trying to make a big deal out of something that's not actually changed. 
I don't know. I learned to diagram a sentence in third grade and, uh, or second grade. I don't know. And, um, you know, I'll always think about those lines and slashes. I don't know if it's helped me any, but I'll always remember the subject predicate modifier. Maybe I won't always remember it because <laughs> I can't recall all of it right now. Well, I remember I could not get a handle on grammar at all until I started taking Latin and then things snapped mm-hmm. into place for me. But I like just being taught in English class didn't make any was sense to me. Way out of school and after college, probably when it kind of fell together. I have this working theory. Maybe you guys can, can poke holes in it because I don't think I've ever said it out loud. But I, I have this working theory that like traditional, at least Western education, every subject that we, you know, the reading, writing, arithmetic joke, like all those subjects um, actually teach a different, like mathematics teaches critical thinking and logic. Um, music and the arts teaches expressiveness and social interpersonal skills. And I think English and grammar teaches rules and how to follow instruction because as a society we needed that and today i don't know that we need it or at least we don't need to teach it in the same way and so i'm wondering if maybe this is sort of another way of saying that maybe grammar isn't as useful because i mean you nailed it but like language is there to be understood and to understand and if we can understand without knowing that we have to put a possessive pronoun in a gerund phrase oh great like why do we need grammar like it's one of those things where i'm like as an author i want to have proper grammar mainly so my aforementioned readers whom i love dearly will get off my back about typos you know Mm. but i don't really care because if you get the gist of it then you get the gist of it you know yeah it's about the story not the grammar i don't know so there's there's two pieces there but the first part yeah i'm just kind of working on this like i think every skill it's like oh yeah now you're supposed to learn mathematics well it's not about learning mathematics right like we're not going to use this not going to learn how to, you know, use a geometric proof to deposit money at the bank, but you know, hell, it's going to probably help you in your taxes. But more importantly, it's going to teach you how to think critically about something. It's another language in and of itself. And I think that's true about all the different subjects. I wonder if grammar was just there for people who grew up on a farm and need to learn how to follow orders, otherwise they get kicked in the head by a cow. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, it you know, it does bring home a lot of social instruction. Grammar included was an ever-evolving subject that was meant to keep the upper class ahead of the lower class. Yeah, I didn't so want to get into that. you had to keep but... like refining how you spoke uh-huh. because they kept learning and then you couldn't tell them apart anymore. There's kind of a narrative going around. I kind of buy into that. Some of this grammar stuff is actually like pretty racist and it's not oh, yeah. like overtly racist, like most racism. It's not overt. It's, it's this kind of subverted, just like what you said, like socioeconomic classism happening through the way we teach kids in certain areas and certain things. Yeah. Well, I don't know how familiar any of you are with the French. Oh, God. I I'm not. What they call it. I um, defamiliarize myself with anything French. <laughs> um, there's this whole like cultural institution where they declare what the correct way is to use French. And so things that have become part of the French vernacular, like le weekend or le hamburger, are theoretically not supposed to be used. And it's ridiculous that this is like a legitimately (laughs) French thing, like endorsed by the government, all of that. But we do the same thing on a much softer scale and all of the stuff about using specific grammatical or specific sound, specific accents, all of that tends to trace back to classism, which runs very, very strongly with racism. So they're like buddies. Yeah, yeah, they're old buddies. They like to hang out together. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so <laughs> grammar, not we so important. It's bullshit. Not so important. I think maybe it's not so important because <laughs> we have like spell check and grammar check and stuff. I think math stopped being important to me when I carried a computer in my pocket, you know? Right. So, 
But all right. Well, on that note, I think we are out of stories. You guys got uh, anything else that you want to add? Anything, uh, any alibis or mulligans? Nope. No, I'm good. No. no. I'm not one of the ones who has a warrant out. I'm changing nothing. That's true. That's true. I, uh, you guys, now. I hope you guys are logged in on like VPNs and stuff. So like <laughs> people aren't like trying is logging in from Qatar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, that's amazing, dude. That's amazing. DACA is nice this time of year. <laughs> all right. So since we've got nothing else to add for all of us at Author News Weekly, I'm R.A. McGee saying this meeting is over. Goodbye. <laughs>